Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. Today, I was joined again by the amazing Dr. Judd Brewer. He's an internationally renowned addiction psychiatrist and neuroscientist. He is also a professor at Brown University and a former TEDx speaker with his talk from 2016 having more than 19 million views. He last joined me on the podcast in June of 2020 with episode 99. Today, we spoke at great length about his new book, The Hunger Habit, and speaking about the differences between homostatic versus hedonistic hunger, the role of detachment of our bodies, the language that we use to speak to ourselves as well as judgment, the role of dopamine, survival mechanisms, the impact of hedonic hunger as this food and reward system, stress eating as well as comfort eating, the role of seco the impact on macro tracking and why Dr. Judd is not a fan of this, his 21-day challenge, building awareness around our habits, being present, and lastly, the impact of trauma on binge eating and adverse childhood events and ways to look at our past experiences and our impact on today's behavior. I know you will love this conversation as much as I did recording it. Welcome back, Judd. It's such a pleasure to reconnect with you. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah. And I really enjoyed reading your book, Hunger Habits. Let's talk about this issue surrounding being detached from our bodies. This is something I clearly see with my own patients and clients. Mm -hmm. And you have a quote in the book that says, hopelessly out of touch with their bodies. So this is clearly an issue that you're seeing within your own patients and your own research participants. Yes, I mean there are plenty, lots of places we could start, but there's one. You know, let's just show how important this question is. And so, for example, a couple of years ago, I started working doing group medical visit with a bunch of women with binge eating disorder, and we were working together for a couple of weeks. And I felt like I was missing something, but I couldn't put my finger on it. And it turned out about three weeks in, I asked some simple question like, you know, oh, well, what's it feel like when you have an urge to eat? And, you know, can you tell if you're hungry or some, some innocuous, what I thought was an innocuous question. And then suddenly it was like stunned silence in the room. I was like, oh, wait a minute. They can't tell the difference from physiologic versus hedonic hunger. And so a, one woman said, well, I just have an urge and I eat. And that's what kind of broke it open, you know, broke the dam for me to realize, oh, this was a miscommunication with the body and a total distancing from their bodies so much. And to me, I, and after that, after, I, you know, that was the Rosetta Stone for me <laughs> of being able to see, oh, you know, it's funny in research, there's a term, you know, that term hedonic hunger had to be developed because it's not even a, an accurate phrase, right? Hedonic hunger. What it means is somebody's eating, not when they're hungry, but because of a feeling or an emotion. You know, they could be sad, bored, lonely, angry, tired, you name it, you name the emotion and it could be associated with food. But they had to come up with this category so they could measure all the times that people ate outside of hunger because true hunger is physiologic hunger. It's called homeostatic hunger. And we have these signals that come in, you know, our stomach rumbles, you know, we fear feel irritable, we have trouble concentrating. There are a bunch of things that clue us into the fact that we actually need calories. But the fact that people over the years have been, and this isn't just you know the last 10 years, this is for a long time, people have been associating eating food, not with actual hunger, but with emotions. They had to come up with a new term to actually study it. Yeah. It's really interesting because you differentiate, you know, helping people understand, differentiate this true intrinsic hunger versus cravings and what physiologically is actually going on in the brain to help explain this. And I, I think maybe starting there will help people kind of understand that in many ways, whether it's maladaptive patterns or you know conditioning that we received while we were children and young adults, but helping them understand what's going on in the brain physiologically that's triggering these 
reactions to whether it's cues or triggers or other things that are ongoing Mm. that stimulate us to eat? Yes. So let's start with the survival mechanisms that are designed to help us, you know, really thrive. And those go back, you know, evolutionarily speaking, all the way to the sea slug. So very evolutionarily conserved process where, you know, humans before there were refrigerators or food delivery services or all night diners, we had to remember where food sources were. So imagine our ancient ancestors, whether it's in the woods or on the savannah, they had to find food and then remember where it was. So this is a memory device that our brains have evolved to uh, use to help us remember where food is. And you can break it down to three elements, a trigger, a behavior, and a result. So we're foraging for food. We see the food. There's the trigger. We eat the food. That's the behavior. And as a result, our stomach sends this dopamine signal to our brain that says, remember what you ate and where you found it. So it's there to set up context-dependent memory. The same is true for danger, right? If we're out foraging, we see danger, there's the trigger, we run away, there's the behavior, and then we're not lunch, we don't get eaten. There's the uh, result or the reward from a neuroscience standpoint. We also learn, hey, that part of the savannah is kind of dangerous. You know, you should (laughs) maybe find food elsewhere. And in modern day, you know, we call those positive and negative reinforcement because that's how we learn to find food and to avoid danger. And so that's healthy, helpful, you know, when our stomach grumbles and it says, hey, go get some food because your stomach's empty. It's interesting, the dopamine firing shifts from finding food to anticipating food. So it's there as this motivation signal. And I want to highlight that because there's so many misconceptions of neurotransmitters and particularly dopamine on the internet where everybody thinks that dopamine is a pleasure molecule. It's not supposed to be a pleasure molecule. It is not a pleasure molecule. If you ask my patients, (laughs) you know, all the, any drug of abuse, you know, hijacks the dopamine system, uh, cocaine, amphetamine, pick any of these that really ramp up dopamine in the synapse one way or the other blocking dopamine transporter or just increasing release. They talk about paranoia. They talk about restlessness. They talk about these urges that are just uh, so unsatisfactory. I had a patient come into my office once who said, I feel like my head's going to explode if I this is a, somebody trying to quit smoking. So he felt like if he didn't smoke a cigarette, his head was going to explode. Notice how none of that is related to pleasure, right? It's about motivation. Dopamine is a motivation molecule that says, get off your couch, you know, get out of the cave, whatever, and go get some food. So I just want to highlight that because you know, I think well-intentioned people on the internet will do research on the internet, <laughs> and then, and then these things get perpetuated just because they rise to the top, not because they're true. Right, and I think that's really helpful because I think in many ways dopamine is misunderstood, or it's thought of as you know just this, as you stated, pleasure-seeking molecule, but in fact, it's far more complicated than that. And so as we're kind of navigating these conversations, I think language becomes very important. And that's certainly something yes. that you discuss in the book, not just the language that we have with ourselves internally, but how we're actually expressing what we're experiencing. And so when you're working with your patients and you know, trying to determine, unpack, uncover what is the motivation behind their behavior, what are some of the common things that men and women will say to themselves. I think there it can be very pejorative. Sometimes I will mm-hmm. oftentimes say if someone's articulating something that's very pejorative towards themselves externally, I can just imagine the internal dialogue that's ongoing. Yes. This is so common that I actually learned this from a, a Western Buddhist monk. <laughs> but he described these committee members in our heads where we have these committee members, whether and the biggest one that I see is the judging committee member. Where you know there's this voice in our said that in our head that says you should do this, you shouldn't do that, and you know I've heard the joke, you know we should all over ourselves, right? But we think that that is a voice of reason or a voice of I don't know our mother, our aunt, <laughs> or whoever that's well intentioned, and so we just assume that that's the way to get things done. And so if it's like oh you should eat healthier, you should not eat that second cookie or you should exercise more or whatever, all of these come 
with not really, I mean, it's well-intentioned, so I could think of it as trying to hold ourselves kindly, but it's not kindness. It's kind of, oh, judgment, judgment, judgment. That's the underlying tone there. So that's the biggest one that I hear. I'm guessing you've seen the same. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think especially because I'm known for intermittent fasting, I will hear women that are like, I'm bad because of X. It's either they didn't fast mm -hmm. long enough, they overfasted, they ate too many carbohydrates. And like now we've vilified carbohydrates. We have vilified so many foods over the past 20 to 25 years that I've been in clinical practice. And so I hear the narrative all the time, you know, what mm -hmm. used to work for these women in particular in their 20s and 30s stop working in their 40s and 50s. So the should start coming out. Women are so hard on themselves in particular. Mm -hmm. And the one thing that I think I have found so fascinating is I've started to understand the psychology behind eating and motivational behaviors is so much of it is you know, our interrelationship, whether it's how we were raised, the relationships we have with our parents, you know, modeling mm. that we saw in our same gender parents, you know, how we, the people we interacted with as a friend or peer group can mm. have such a large impact on how we view ourselves. Like as an example, you know, women being, you know, put on a pedestal because they're able to maintain a certain size or, you know, someone that seems to have so much constraints around food, but then they go home and they have so much shame about the, their mm -hmm. bodies and, and their relationship with food that maybe they binge in secrecy or, yeah. you know, it's those kinds of complex behaviors that I find really interesting. And so obviously this is a lot of the work that you do is finding that motivational behavior and how to help people kind of reroute their lifestyle choices. Yeah. And so we might even be able to highlight some of that and just build on, you know, we've talked about the healthy homeostatic hunger. Let's talk about how hedonic hunger gets set up. And this could be, it often, it doesn't have to start in childhood, but it often does for many people where it could be as simple as, you know, associating birthday parties with cake and ice cream and fun, right? And so we lay down this reward value of ice cream being this rewarding thing. And we've got all these great memories. And to me, ice cream tastes pretty good. Don't know about you. So here, you know, our brains have learned that chocolate or ice cream is rewarding. And then when we come across something that's unpleasant, like we're sad or we're, we've had a tough day at work or we're, we feel exhausted or somebody's just berated us or we've just berated ourselves, <laughs> you know, that judgmental voice in our head, then our brain says, well, doesn't chocolate taste pretty good? Why don't you have some chocolate? And we think, we don't even think about this, but you know, our body says, well, I'm not really hungry, but our brain's like, yeah, yeah, that's a, try that, try that. It, you know, chocolate's pretty good. And so we eat some chocolate and we learn, you know, this is where stress eating habits come in or comfort eating. That's why comfort food is called comfort food because it comforts us. You know, I had a patient with binge eating disorder. She'd been binging for probably 20 years. And she was at the point when she came to see me, she was binging on entire large pizzas, 20 out of 30 days a month. So pretty severe. And she described it this way. She said, I binged to numb myself because she had started this, I think she was eight or 10 when her mom was emotionally abusing her. And she said the only mechanism she had at the time was just to eat because that was something she had control over. So she would start eating and she said she would eat to numb herself. And by the time she came to see me, you know, she was binging, you know, pretty out of control. And then on top of this, she was beating herself up for binging. And because the only thing her brain knew to do to help her with something unpleasant, when she would binge, sometimes she would binge on top of a binge as a way to numb herself from beating herself up from binging. And so you can see how this can become a vicious cycle when we just don't know how our brain works. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep. 
We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of bean minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water. And you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.beaminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.beaminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. Weight gain is one of many symptoms that our hormones are in decline, especially as we navigate perimenopause into menopause. Dr. Anna, who is a great friend of mine, is an OBGYN who's treated thousands of women just like you and I who experience increasing dryness and even pain in the bedroom as they get older. Jolva is the solution Dr. Anna formulated for her own clients, and it has since been loved by over 100,000 women. It's a feminine cream with DHEA that helps the body regenerate moisture from the inside out. 92.8% of Jolva users experienced a significant improvement in the first four to eight weeks. Get 10% off your first purchase of Jolva by using the link dranna.com slash Cynthia. That's DrAnna.com, Cynthia, and get 10% off your first purchase. Yeah. And it's really interesting. I remember reading that in the book. And for me, it got me thinking about, you know, the advent of companies like Weight Watchers as an example. And I guess that started in the 1960s, which preceded you and I being born, but still, you know, that prevailing diet dogma emphasis on calories in, calories out. How does that factor into the work that you're doing? Because I, I feel like we're still, we as healthcare providers are still working really hard to help people understand that it's more than just the amount of calories we take in and how much we exercise. There's so much more to it yeah. than, you know, making it so simplistic and, you know, whittling it down to SECO as we typically call it. Yeah. Uh, are you ready for this? So I was actually fed this in medical school. And I know, you know, I check in with medical students to see what their curriculum is. And they still learn this. And the formula is correct. You know, I call it uh, calories in, calories out, Kiko, I guess. <laughs> yeah. But it's the same thing. And so this formula is correct. And the way I learned it in medical school, it was like a Newtonian law. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, just tell them to stop eating cake and to eat salad and you're all good to go. <laughs> and I ate it right up, you know, okay. You know, and then I start my actual practice and I'm like, what am I missing? You know, cause this is not working. This is terrible. And then my patients are binging on top of, because they're feeling bad about themselves. And so I had to go back and look and it turned out this happened to be at the time when I was studying, trying to help people quit smoking. And we just done a big randomized controlled trial in my lab. I was at Yale at the time where we got five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment. And somebody in that program that we were developing an app uh, called Craving to Quit. And somebody in the program that was pilot testing it said, hey, I'm changing my eating habits. And I assumed that they were just gaining weight because most people you know, eat more to substitute food for, for cigarettes because the, the willpower thing doesn't work so well. And they said, no, I'm actually cutting down on my eating habits. And that was a big aha moment for me to go and look at eating and then it turns out that this mechanism is really based around eating. You know, we didn't evolve with cigarettes, <laughs> but we did evolve with food because we have to eat. And so that's when I started realizing that this was a common mechanism. And when you look at it from a neuroscience standpoint, willpower is not in the equation at all, right? Childhood's not even in the equation to a large degree. I mean, we set up these reward values for behavior. So, you know, we can set them up as a kid, but we can also set them up later in life. And as kids often, you know, parents, you know, if a kid's throwing a tantrum in the grocery store and then the parent gives them a lollipop, 
to soothe them, then suddenly the kid has just trained the parent to feed them lollipops, you know, and it's not the parent's fault and it's not the kid's fault either. They just need some soothing. And so if the parent can step back and, you know, just ask like, what does my kid need as compared to what do I want, which is I want them to stop screaming, you know, and probably everybody in the grocery store (laughs) isn't pleased (laughs) about this either. But that highlights how we get, go down these paths of, oh, just use your willpower and then wonder why it doesn't work when we've been feeding these habits sometimes for a lifetime. So I got totally fascinated by this, especially, you know, as a neuroscientist, talking to my colleagues who are doing this very basic neuroscience and then doing my own clinical work. I'm like, wait a minute, this is a true thing. Like the neuroscientists are right. They haven't missed something. It's not about willpower at all. And that's where I shifted my whole you know, research focus and then treatment focus around helping people change their relationship to eating in a different way without willpower. Yeah. And so there's something you refer to a concept called the abstinence violation effect or aka, you know, effort when you've <laughs> binged or you've gone overboard. And I found this particularly fascinating uh, related to willpower because I think inappropriately. So certainly when you trained, when I trained, we were kind of taught, oh, it's just a matter of willpower. You just need to condition your patients to understand that if they just want it badly enough, that they can do X, Y, or Z. And it just doesn't work that way. Right. And I just want to highlight something you just said. If they just want it badly enough, which means, which puts it on them, right? So more shame, more blame, And a great marketing tool for any program that's based on a specific diet, because they can say, oh, you know, the formula is correct. You just need more willpower. You should sign up for another year, (laughs) you know, and it's just really sad because I'm sure that's well-intentioned as well. And I'm sure there's, you know, some profit motive behind it, but I don't know if you notice, you know, Oprah, not too long ago, you know, she's a big stakeholder in Weight Watchers. She went on the record, like this big Wall Street Journal article, where she kind of apologized for telling people to use willpower. And it's not like it's her her fault. They were Weight Watchers has been doing this from the inception. You know, it's like those shame based weigh ins for the weekly meetings and all of this stuff, where it's like, oh, you just need to have more willpower. And look at, let's reward all the people that do have willpower with their weigh in and, you know, the smiles and the congratulations. Well, that's just setting people up for failure. And on top of that, this abstinence violation effect comes in. So the, as my patients call it, the efforts, you know, it's like, well, (laughs) I tried this. I lost a little weight. I gained it back. This is hopeless for me. There's something wrong with me. And so effort, I'm just going to eat. And so they go, you know, they go on a binge or they, you know, it go right back to the old habits or even more. And it's just really sad because they've just been miseducated by the public and by public servants, you know, I I wish we could change medical school and nurse practitioner school curricula to reflect this adage. But I think it's going to be really challenging because a lot of doctors, a lot of psychologists, a lot of, you know, medical professionals have a lot of willpower. And so they're like, well, there must be something wrong with you, you know, or it feels like they have a lot of willpower and because they've succeeded and they've made it through all this, you know, higher education process. But you know what? It may not be willpower that got them through that. (laughs) Just saying. Yeah, no. And it's interesting because people will say to me when, you know, I'm speaking at an event or I'm doing a podcast and we're kind of reviewing listeners questions. What are the questions they want to know more about? And I always tell them that I'm not a good example of you know, what necessarily works for everyone. And it's important for each one of us to do a little bit of work to find out what's most motivating or what works Mm -hmm. best. I think that in many ways that I have successfully found what works for me personally, like my one great vice in life is dark chocolate. Listeners Mm -hmm. know this, but, uh, but even I have episodes where like over the holidays, probably like a lot of people listening, you unknowingly start eating more of whatever your trigger food or foods are. And all of a sudden, before you know it, you're like, wait a minute, I am like way beyond where I should normally be. How do I bring myself back? And I found for myself on January 1st, fully transparently, I'd eaten too much dark chocolate over two week period of time. And -hmm. it was really challenging, maybe for the first time in my adult life to kind of realize that 
okay, let's think about why we're eating it. Maybe it's the stress of being around family members. Maybe it's, you know, trying to adapt to, you know, a crazy travel schedule, whatever it is. But it's amazing. The more I resisted eating more chocolate, the more mm. I felt like it was becoming increasingly more challenging to avoid yeah. it. Yeah. And I would assume that's probably pretty common. Yes. And that's where the abstinence violation effect comes in, you know, and this, this saying, you know, what we resist persists. And mm -hmm. so I just want to give a, a quick shout out to the people in my book, because it's really these voices from my clinic and from our Eat Right Now program that really bring these concepts to life because it's, they're speaking from their own experience. Almost all of them agree to use their real names because they're like, look, this is, I'm not ashamed of this because they've learned how their brains work. And so I'm thinking of several folks with this absence violation effect and how they resisted and resisted and resisted. And it just, you know, there's a woman in the book called, uh, her name is Jackie, and she described the craving monster. And she said the more she fought with it or ran from it, the stronger it got. And so here we can learn, and I love, I, I love dark chocolate as well, but we can even <laughs> use this as an example of how we can actually change our relationship to eating in a different way. And I'll start by saying this provocative statement, which is the why doesn't even matter. Yeah. It doesn't even matter. So you mentioned, you know, so like, well, why was I eating more dark chocolate during the holidays? To change a habit doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. It, as much as our brain's like, if I could just figure out why, then I, and then the implication is that we can fix it. But really what we need to figure out is how our brains work. And this reward-based learning system, this reinforcement learning, the only part of the equation that the why comes in for is the, uh, is the trigger. It just sets the process in motion. So we could try to avoid our triggers, but that ultimately is really hard, especially when it's food, right? Because we all have to eat to survive. You can try avoiding alcohol or cigarettes because you don't need those to survive, but good luck avoiding food. And the other part is, like, why not actually enjoy some chocolate? I don't know about you. I know about you now, but I love dark chocolate as well. So we can actually find ways to change that relationship so that we can enjoy the chocolate in a guilt-free manner and at the same time, learn how to work with our brains. Like that's a winning formula. And we've actually seen that in our research. You know, like in one study, we got a 40% reduction in craving-related eating you know, through a non-willpower-based methodology. No, and I love that idea because I think what we're looking for is sustainability, you know, something that we can practice. We don't feel like is making us more uncomfortable or triggering, you know, disordered relationships with food, because to your point, we need food to survive. We may not mm -hmm. need some other, you know, accessory things like alcohol or cigarettes. What are your thoughts on tracking macronutrients? So whether it's protein, fat, carbohydrates, do you find that that is helpful for individuals that are trying to cut back on specific things or is that, or is the awareness, is that helpful or harmful? I would say if I had to pick one or the other in general, and it's hard, really hard to generalize for individuals, but in general, I've seen it be more harmful than helpful. And this is, here's the reason. One, it's really hard to accurately track. Two, there are lots of reasons for us to then focus externally rather than listening to our bodies. So it actually divorces us and distances us from our own bodies. And relatedly, number three is that our bodies generally tell us everything that we need to know as long as we can listen, learn to listen to them. So I've seen many, many failures where somebody says, oh, I can have this number of calories or I can eat this number of carbs. Remember a guy tracking his calories. And he's like, oh, I've got this number left. And so he opens up one of those like bowl size dishes or containers of ready-made icing and gets out a spoon. And then just, you know, it's like, okay, this number of calories, boom, boom, boom. I'm like, one, it turns my stomach just to think about that. But two, it's like, well, somebody who's like, I love icing and I have this number of calories, you know, it's probably not the healthiest way to go about living. And if his aim is to, I mean, his aim, he was trying to lose some, some weight, I think you know, let's listen to our bodies because our bodies gonna, are going to tell us everything that we need to know. You know, let's use dark chocolate as an example. You, why don't we use that as a concrete example? What do you say? I think that sounds great. Okay. So, and I, I highlight this process 
in the hunger habit, but it really is pretty simple where the first thing is three steps. It's funny how everything ends up being three steps. You know, I didn't force this function. It was just through our, we did a bunch of research over 10 years and a lot of focus groups with people in my clinic and using our programs. And they're like, and it turned out that it was about, you know, with our qualitative research, it's about three steps. So the first step is just being able to identify the behavior. If you want to fully flesh that out, it could be mapping out the habit loop. So I think of it as the why, the what, and the how. So why am I eating? And not as a way to focus on the why to fix it, but just so they can somebody can differentiate hedonic versus homeostatic hunger, right? So if they're eating because they're hungry, great, they're listening to their body. If they're eating outside of hunger, if they're overeating, probably not so helpful or healthy. And so, and then the what, are they reaching for comfort food or are they reaching for, you know, the calories that their body is telling them that they need? And the more people can calibrate and listen to their bodies, the more they're, they're like, yeah, I need some protein right now. Or, you know, I need, some, as compared to, I want some carbohydrates, right? The carbs are tricky because they, they trick us into thinking, you know, it's like, oh, you need me, but it's really, you want me because I've been refined that way so that you will want me. <laughs> and and so somebody said this to me a little while ago. They said, you know, they were talking about, I think it was good and plenty candies. And he said, it tastes like more, <laughs> you know, because you, know? you can't even differentiate like what exactly one of these artificial things is like. And for me, it was gummy worms, you know, gummy worms really taste like more. And we're like, when I really pay attention, they taste kind of sickly sweet. They're not very good. And we can go into that later, but you know, that's the first step is like, what is it that I'm eating? And then how am I eating? Am I paying attention am I, uh, as I eat or am I just scarfing it down? So for me, gummy worms, I'd eat the whole bag because I was just so addicted that it was just like, okay, at least they'll be out of the house. So that's the first step is just wrecking. I think of it, you can simplify it to just what's the behavior? Is it, you know, am I eating because I'm hungry or because of some emotion, boredom, something else, or just habit? You know, often there's, you know, you see the food and you eat it. The second step really leverages the brain in a beautiful way. Our brains are so beautiful in how they work. And so there's a part of the brain called the orbitofrontal cortex that determines the reward value of something. And often, you know, as we talked about, you know, like we set a reward value when we're kids, like ice cream, cake, things like that. So we set this composite reward value and then we forget about the details. And we go, go through life so that, it, and this is actually helpful so that we don't have to relearn everything every day, right? So we can make decisions quickly. From a calorie standpoint, our survival brains will look at broccoli versus chocolate and say, chocolate's got more calories, go for that. And that's why often, you know, we're like, well, why do I like chocolate more than broccoli? Well, our brain saying, hey, you know, prepare for famine, even though for most of us, we don't need to prepare for famine. But the important thing here is, we set these reward values and the only way to change them is through awareness. I want to highlight that. I'm going to say that again. <laughs> the only way to change a habit is by paying attention to how rewarding or unrewarding the behavior is. So no willpower, no childhood. The childhood is can be where the reward value gets set up, but in present moment, it's not about our childhood because that's over. You know, that's happened in the past. And so let's use a concrete example. Let's say chocolate cake. Let's say there's a new bakery that opens up in my neighborhood and I go in there. I don't know how good their chocolate cake is. So I eat their chocolate cake. And if it's the best chocolate cake I've ever had, my brain gives a signal, a dopamine signal that says, remember this. It's called a positive prediction error because it's better than expected. It's an error, meaning it's different from the baseline. Okay. Not that something went wrong, but something actually went dopaminergically right, as in I learned something. On the other hand, if it's the worst cake I've ever had, I also learned something, which is, you know, these guys need to get their act together if they want to keep their bakery going. I'm not coming back because I've gotten a negative prediction error that says, hey, you know, not the greatest cake. And we can leverage that in two ways. One, and we, we actually did a study and published it now a couple of years ago, where we have people pay attention as they overate or as they ate, you know, junk food. And we could actually measure the change in reward value. Are you ready for this? It only took 10 to 15 times of somebody paying careful attention as they overate for that reward value to drop below zero. And what that meant was that they were getting consistent negative prediction errors that said, hey, you, you need to update the reward value of this behavior. Whether they learned it as a clean, 
clean plate club as a kid or just, you know, didn't want to waste food or they're not paying attention in a social situation, whatever it is, when somebody overeats, they can actually unlearn that pretty quickly, which is great. And that's really the power of our brain. Our brains are tremendously plastic. They can change very quickly as long as we know how they work and we can leverage those mechanisms. So I'm going to pause there. I said a lot with these first two steps, but before we go into the third step, does all of that make sense? Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting edge technology and human expertise so you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, exercise, sleep, and where you are in your menstrual cycle in real time. And by pairing a continuous glucose monitor with their app and expert nutritional guidance, NutriSense can help you reach your health goals. And the best part is it's not just a program where they send you the CGM and you have to figure it out on your own. Each subscription plan includes one month of free expert nutritionist support. Your nutritionist will work with you one-on-one interpreting your data and providing customized advice to help you reach your health goals. The last time I had my CGM on, my registered dietitian and I troubleshooted over some specific concerns that I had. And whether you're aiming to lose weight, stabilize your energy, or just feel better overall, NutriSense offers the guidance and support you need. And lasting sustainable change takes time and can be achieved through a longer term subscription. That's why I encourage my patients and clients to consider three, six, or 12-month subscriptions where it's actually less expensive and allows you to not only achieve your goals, but also to ensure that you stick to your healthy lifestyle for the long term. As I've mentioned before, I have found the CGMs I've used through NutriSense to be incredibly insightful, specifically to carbohydrate tolerance. I would not have known that plantains spiked my blood sugar without this information. It's also been hugely helpful for tailoring to workouts and sleep quality. And so for me, even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io slash EWP and use the code EWP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. Mighty Maca is a superfood drink mix full of 30 plus natural ingredients, and it was formulated by Dr. Anna Kabeca during her healing journey. Mighty Maca Plus ingredients, which include nourishing ingredients like organic maca powder, turmeric, quercetin, broccoli, parsley, trans resveratrol, pomegranate extract, and more, were carefully selected for immune support to sustain energy provide mental clarity and improve recovery. It also tastes delicious. It supports healthy detoxification and alkalinity in the body, balances hormones, fights free radicals, and neutralizes lactic acid, all while increasing your energy and vitality. It helps improve your digestion and reignites your libido. It's a powerful superfood drink mix that needs to be part of your daily routine. And Dr. Anna is offering my listeners 10% off your first purchase by using the link dranna.com slash Cynthia. That's 10% off your first per that's 10% off your first purchase by using the link dranna.com slash Cynthia. It's delicious and nutritious. It does make sense. And I think for people that are listening, helping them understand that this growing awareness piece is so important. Because to me, when I hear the word awareness, it's a pause, it's a reset, it's you know, getting familiarized with what is going on around you and within yourself around this particular challenging behavior that you are attempting to shift or change. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's put nicely. And, And notice how none of that has to do with telling ourselves that we did a bad job or we did a good job or we should do better or we shouldn't do this or we should do that, right? All of that's up in our head. What really drives change is our body. I think of it this way, that our feeling body is much stronger and wiser than our thinking brain, as much as we like to think that we can do anything. Well, and and for anybody that thinks they can, I say, go for it. Just think your way. Tell yourself to stop, stop eating junk food and see how well that works. Most people have tried that and failed. 
So that's really leveraging the strength of our brain. It seems paradoxical at first. And I will say it seems extremely scary at first to most people, especially people that have the voice of the food police in their head, where they set up all the food rules and then they police themselves and they put themselves in food jail for whenever they break the rules and then they beat themselves up. You know, it's a, it's a terrible cycle to be stuck in. So it can be when I, I still remember the look on several people's faces when I said, just go ahead and eat whatever you want. And they're looking at me like I'm crazy. And one person said, I can't do that. And I said, well, it's going to be hard to change until you give yourself permission. And Jackie actually highlights this beautifully in the book where she talked about giving herself permission. She had just come off of a very unpleasant interaction with her mom, let's just put it that way. And, and she used to drive to a grocery store and then go and get a bunch, listen to loud music and get a bunch of food and binge in the car. So she sits in the car. I think she was crying at the time because it was a really tough interaction. And then she gives herself permission to get whatever she wants in the grocery store. This is part of the, she joined our Eat Right Now program and was using the tools to do this, to give herself permission. And she goes in and, and she started asking herself each time, well, what's going to happen if I get this and eat this? Because she'd done it so many times. She could actually feel into the results. And she actually came up with this term and I love it. We call it developing your disenchantment database or data bank. She's from the UK. So she called it your, your disenchantment data bank. And the idea is that the more we do a behavior that's unrewarding, the more that gets laid down in memory. And as long as we can recall what that was like, we can leverage it without having to go and experience it again. If we haven't paid attention, then we need to collect those data, which is why I give my patients permission or have them give themselves permission to go and eat because they've got to develop the information. But that most folks already have that stored away somewhere. So Jackie develops this disenchantment data bank. She goes in the store. She's like, if I eat this, this will happen. If I eat this, this will happen. And she walks out of the store. I think it was with avocado and some spinach. And she said she left the uh, car park laughing like a lunatic, if I remember correctly, because she's like, oh my God, this is tremendously freeing to give myself permission because she had developed that disenchantment and she had gone to the bank and taken out that, you know, the deposit that she'd put in. And she's like, oh yeah, this is the best thing. And, and the best thing actually gets into the third step, which I call the bigger, better offer, which can simply be stepping out of the old habit loop. And the way I think of step three is it's really finding anything that's more rewarding, not a substitute, but really finding a behavior that's sustainable, as you said earlier, that's more rewarding than the old behavior. And for many people, it's simply stepping out of the old habit loop. And maybe we could use, I'm sorry to keep talking so much, but I just get excited about this. You talk about dark chocolate and there's actually my friend, Dana Small, who's a food researcher at Yale, did a study for her PhD thesis with dark chocolate. Actually, it was with any chocolate. She gave people choices to pick their favorite chocolate. And then she started feeding them while she was scanning their brains and also had them rate how much they liked the chocolate. So at first, you know, it's like their favorite chocolate. And they're like, I can't believe I'm getting paid. Somebody's feeding this to me. You know, <laughs> this couldn't be better. And then she kept feeding, right? That was the catch. I think the, and you can just imagine how this goes. I think the record, the person that ate the most squares of chocolate, I think it was 74 pieces of chocolate. And I know, oh my gosh. but she would basically feed people until they were, they rated the scale as this is disgusting. You know, eating more would make me feel sick. And so what that highlights is that our bodies have these inborn, very wise mechanisms to tell us when we've had too much. And I think of this as the pleasure plateau. So can we use you as an example, if it's okay? Absolutely. Okay. So do the thought experiment and think back to a time, you know, when you eating dark chocolate. And so what's the first, describe the first square or the first bite. How does it taste, feel, you know, just the general experience? I mean, it's blissful, you know, to me, you know, I'm happy. My taste buds light up. I'm really enjoying, because I like salted dark chocolate, so I'm really yeah. enjoying yeah. the marrying of those two flavors. And I'm happy with what, like that one square, I'm like really blissful. Yeah, yeah. And I found that a little bit of cacao nib as a little crunch as part of it, or even a little bit of cayenne, uh, you know. So yeah, I'm totally with you on the sea salt. And you can see how, you know, you can find that bliss point, so to speak. Okay, so now the question is, 
as you imagine eating the next bite and the next bite, ask yourself, is this better than the same as or worse than the last bite? And you don't need to go through every single bite, but can you see where that starts to plateau out exactly. for you, from your experience? Yeah. yeah. And that's why for me, I always try to be cognizant and present as so I eat it slowly because I'm enjoying it. I'm trying to savor that first bite. But if I yeah. have another square or a few more squares, it, you absolutely that like bliss point point starts to kind of digress. I mean, it's yeah. not nearly as wonderful as the first bite. And yeah. so I think that's why I'm so conscientious about enjoying and savoring the first square, because I know if I have two more or one more or five more, I know that I'm not going to feel nearly as good as I did with yeah. the first. Yeah. So let's highlight a couple of things there because you're highlighting everything that we've seen in our research and I've seen in my clinic as well. So one, I love the, I don't know if it's a bumper sticker or a slogan, but it's like, you must be present to win. Right. And so you're describing savoring and the only way to savor is to truly be present. So we're not eating something to numb ourselves, but we're eating something to truly enjoy it. That's the first piece. The second is that our body's going to tell us everything that we need to know. I didn't hear any willpower in what you described, mm -hmm. right? And so we can naturally hit that pleasure plateau and coast to a stop without having to slam on the brakes before we go off what I call the, the cliff of overindulgence, <laughs> right? So we don't have to say stop because we've coasted to a stop because our brain says, hey, you know, you're done. The bonus, ready for this? The bonus is there's more chocolate for later. No, no. And I actually think about that. Like as I, because my whole family knows, like I have my little chocolate stash in our pantry mm. and Thankfully, even though I have teenage boys, no one touches my stash because they know I'm like, this is like mom's one thing. But I can tell you if I get to a <laughs> point where there's no stash of said dark chocolate, it provokes a little bit of anxiety. I mean, it, yeah. it's interesting. Like I was saying to my <laughs> husband, I don't ever want to be one of those people who feels like they need a fix. But to me, if if there's plenty there, I'm like, oh, good. So tomorrow when I come back, if I want a square of dark chocolate, it's there versus if I you know, go to my stash and there's nothing there. I'm like, oh, like I'm disappointed. I'm like, oh, this is disappointing. I'm yeah. so sad about this. Well, well, maybe said good husband will listen to the podcast and make sure your stash is always <laughs> <Yes>. full. <laughs> no, he <laughs> is good about spouse. that. He's definitely good about that for sure. So where is the point to which like as an I'll keep I'll use myself as an example. I do fine with dark chocolate. I can limit. I'm aware of like when I'm I've had enough and I can put it away. But if you give me a gluten-free brownie as mm -hmm. an example, something that has flour in it. Yeah. Totally yeah. different. Yeah. What's going on in my brain that makes me want more and more and more? Like I almost feel like the cart is going to go off the rails if I'm mm -hmm. not being fully present and cognizant of what I'm doing. Yes. So brownies, whether they're gluten-free or not, have, you know, and this has actually been engineered. There's a term called the bliss point. And so this perfect mix of salt, sugar, and fat, whether it's ice cream or brownies, but you can see how there's certain foods that hit that pretty well, you know. <laughs> ice cream and brownies are great examples because, you know, brownies are basically what sugar, butter, and flour and some mm -hmm. salt and some chocolate if you make chocolate brownies. And so the idea there is that our bodies are saying, hey, this is a great source of calories, you know, and <laughs> I can pack it in. And so our bodies are saying, eat more, eat more, eat more because they're preparing for famine. Whereas dark chocolate is saying, you know, this is delicious it's not going to be the fastest way to get calories in. So we have these built-in mechanisms that say, don't bother trying to binge on dark chocolate. You know, the brownies are going to be the best way to do that. And so it's really set up for the, you know, and I don't know, tell me, I've noticed this, I love doing experiments on myself. And one of them is to just look at the different levels of chocolate, the cacao percentage in a chocolate bar. And so milk chocolate has a low, much lower than, you know, like semi-dark or whatever, like 50, 60%, 70%. And I've noticed that the more monster comes out for me below 70%. Mm -hmm. And so like, I won't even slum it into 70, you know, below the seventies anymore, because it's just like that urge to eat more overtakes the joy of actually eating it. And if I want calories, I'd rather get them 
from something that's not chocolate, you know, I'd, <laughs> you know, like protein for me, if I need calories, I love eating something that's a good protein source because it keeps me full for a long time, especially as compared to like brownies or, or something with a lot of refined carbohydrates. Yeah, no, same. And, you know, for me, I've just learned that I can moderate my behavior around dark chocolate. And same with me, 70% or greater. I mean, if it's 80%, then I'm definitely, it's very easy to moderate mm-hmm. versus the times in my house, you know, and I have teenage boys. And so sometimes there's like, you know, we'll make cookies or we'll make brownies. And my husband sometimes will watch me just throw things out. And I'm like, because it's getting to a point where it is, it's almost like a siren beckoning to me. And I'm like, I don't need it. I am yeah. aware of that. But I also know that my ability to be present and enjoy and savor is mitigated by that bliss point. And, and listeners are familiar with the bliss point. We know the processed mm-hmm. food industry does a really great job of ensuring that we you know, can have an endless bag of Doritos or brownies or whatever it is because they want to sell more of their products and ultra processed foods or I think they make up up 70% of people's diets right now. So it really is a huge, a huge challenge to manage your hedonic impulses under those circumstances. Yeah, for sure. My favorite peer-reviewed journal, The Onion. (laughs) (laughs) Um, For those of folks that don't know what The Onion is, it's a a wonderful satirical uh, newspaper. And they had a headline once that said, Doritos celebrates its one millionth ingredient. (laughs) (laughs) So in your experience, what are the foods that people struggle with most? I'm assuming it's probably the processed carbohydrates, but is it particular foodstuffs in general that seem to give patients the most trouble? Well, this, it depends on the person. So often people have developed, you know, whatever their comfort food is, and that can happen early in life. It can happen in teenage years. It can happen in adulthood. And so the category is really more important than the type of food. And it really comes down, you know, the bottom line is, and this is, I'm sure everybody already knows this, right? Anything that's processed, basically. So, you know, whole food, you know, for me, it's simple, like whole food, and I like plant-based diet, right? So whole food plant-based for me is really solid. I feel great after I eat that type of food. And I feel pretty crappy and, you know, emotional. I get these emotional roller coasters when I eat a bunch of processed, especially carbohydrate-rich food. So I think that's, you know, as a category, I'm not saying anything that's new or different or even controversial at this point. It's really, you know, our bodies are so wise. They tell us everything. Actually, I'll highlight this with a story of my own. So we're talking about this third step. I call it finding the bigger, better offer. And what that means is that our brains are going to look for something better than our old habits. And if the old habit is overindulging or eating junk food, then we've got to give them something better. And it's not just finding a better junk food. It's really about finding something that helps us feel healthy and whole and happy. So when I started paying attention when I ate gummy worms, you know, to me, it was like, oh, this tastes like petroleum. (laughs) I still remember it. It's like, oh, this is sickly sweet. And so I became disenchanted with eating gummy worms. We actually have some gummy type things in our uh, cabinet right now because my wife has some, but I'm she doesn't even ask me anymore because I'm because she knows what the answer is. I'm just not interested. But for me also, it opened up the space to start exploring something new. And for me, it was blueberries. It turned out, out to be blueberries, which have this for me perfect you know, mouthfeel, you know, pop when you've got a really juicy blueberry sweetness. And I just realized this the other day that you actually get some intermittent reinforcement. The thing that we learn, I'm trying to think how to put it in non-scientific terms. Well, let's just say it. The learning mechanism that is most reinforcing for any animal is called intermittent reinforcement. So it's basically a slot machine. You know, you don't know when you're going to win. And with the blueberries, you know, every blueberry is a payout unless it's rotten, obviously. But you never know which one's going to be slightly sweeter or slightly tart, more tart. And for me, I like them both. And so it's like, hmm, I wonder which one this one will be. Will it be a tart <laughs> one or a sweet one? So it even gives a little bit of, of lottery feel to it because you don't know what the next one's going to be like. And I love that about blueberries. And, you know, so they taste great. I don't overindulge. I get fiber. You know, it's like, it's all good. For me, it's just pure goodness. 
Yeah, it's all a win-win. You know, low glycemic berries are always a winner in my estimation. Now, one last topic to kind of touch on, because I did get a lot of questions about adverse childhood events, histories of trauma, and the association Mm -hmm. with binge eating. Can we speak to some of the behavioral mechanisms that you've been able to either witness as a clinician or the research surrounding this? Yes. And so, and I actually dedicated an entire chapter to this in my book because it's so important. So one, I would say for all the people who have had some type of trauma in their past, which is a lot of people, whether it's micro or you know, small T trauma or capital T, my heart goes out to you because it whatever it was, it's not your fault. And often people feel like it's their fault. You know, they did something to provoke it or whatever. And I've seen this so many times, particularly in women who've had sexual trauma, where, you know, you know, because they were attractive, somebody, you know, became a predator or something like that. And so often I've seen women, you know, gain a bunch of weight as a protective mechanism and then struggle with that and then struggle with their self-esteem because of the societal standards that tell them that that is, you know, not acceptable. Just really unfortunate cycle of really social it's really social conditioning. This is based on our, you know, what has been allowed and fortunately is starting to slowly change in society. So there, I would also say, you know, first, it's not your fault Two, you know, I think of this as often we've developed coping mechanisms. And the analogy that I use is like, we've put on some shoes that have helped to carry us somewhere and protected us. But at some point in our lives, those shoes don't fit anymore. And we have to honor that those shoes helped us or they were the only things that we had in the past. And we have to honor that, but also at the same time have to learn to let it go. If we become too identified with that set of shoes, we're never gonna learn that they might actually be hurting us now, you know, when they don't fit. And it, it can take a lot of courage to take those shoes off and find a new pair, because change is scary to anybody. So I just wanna highlight that piece as well. You know, if we've been used to protecting ourselves in a certain way for such a long time, it can be extremely scary to even consider change. But here I would say the best thing we can do to take care of ourselves is ask ourselves, what do I need right now? Right, So that we can really provide that self-care. And there are lots of people that do a lot of great work around self-care and around trauma work. And I've you know, brought in some tools that people can use for kindness toward themselves in the book, but really it's critical that someone uh, see themselves as worthy of self-care and then take that sometimes very scary action to go out and actually make sure that they're getting the self-care that they need as compared to just putting on another pair of shoes that doesn't necessarily fit. No, beautifully stated. And I feel like trauma is getting you know greater focus and awareness over the last several years. And to the credit of people like yourself and Gabor Mate, who's been a guest on the podcast, as well as many others. I think for many individuals, they've assumed because they have not had big T trauma that the little T trauma isn't such a big deal. I think little T trauma can be just as impactful depending on the individual. Well, I've loved our conversation. I highly encourage my listeners to go out and check out The Hunger Habit. Please let listeners know how to connect with you on social media, how to work with you, how to get your book, et cetera. Sure. So I have a website, drjud.com. And also I'm on Instagram at uh, dr.jud. Uh, so at dr.jud. And then on formerly known as Twitter. <laughs> Good old X. Yeah, at Judd Brewer. But uh, Instagram and, and my website, drjud.com are the best way to get a hold of me and got all the you know book links and things like that there. Great. And we'll look up your prolific TED Talk and your other books so that everyone can check those out as well. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. 
It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness. 